Oh, they, they were married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout. And uh, shortly, the night they met, Dad was calling her his fiance. And I need you to hold me tight whenever I want you. If Dad wrote it alone, he put his name on it. If Mom wrote it alone, she put her name on it. If, if they had any interaction at all on the song, they shared it. Welcome to Americana One. This is Ken Paulson, and today we're celebrating the extraordinary career of the Bryants, Felice and Boudelot. And they are being honored with a special exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame, and I'm so pleased to have their son, Del, Del Bryant, here, along with uh, the senior historian at the Country Music Hall of Fame, Dr. John Rumble. I, uh, I, ha I have to tell you, first of all, Del, how impressed I am with your career. And you've, you've led BMI, you've been a major figure in the recording industry, and clearly the family business was good for you. I mean, <laughs> did you grow up wanting to go into the publishing side of the business? Well, I, I grew up understanding songs. I, uh, I knew from, from day one uh, what it took to write them, because the best, the best examples of that were my parents, and they worked hard at it, they worked continuously at it, they made it seem like fun, and I just, I learned that process without knowing I was learning it. <laughs> and I have to believe that what you've done for a living reinforced your respect for what they accomplished. Oh, yes. I mean, first I knew how hard it was to, to have a hit, and I knew what it was like to, to pitch your songs and how, how tough it was. And so when I went to work at BMI, I was a... I was just a, a person on the street signing up songwriters, working with established songwriters, trying to explain to them uh, how BMI worked and always telling people why they didn't make as much money as they thought they should. And songwriters, you know, that it's not easy to be a songwriter. I'm sure my folks didn't always feel they were compensated fairly. But I really had the right kind of empathy because of the background I had. And I took to it, I listened to songs, and. I inherently knew when something wasn't quite as tight as it could be, and I never was one to tell somebody it wasn't a good song or it wasn't good. But I say, boy, you know, that's a great, that's a great verse, but your second verse doesn't develop that, and uh, so forth and so on. But it was everything I'd learned watching and listening to my folks. It was a master class for very, me. Very cool. Dr. Rumble, you know, out of a, this is Music City. It's a town that has probably more songwriters per capita than anywhere else in the world. What is it about the Bryants that led the Hall of Fame to create this exhibit to honor them today? Well, they were the first songwriters to make a living exclusively by writing songs. They were some of the earliest professional songwriters on the scene. I mean, there were people like Fred Rose of Ake of Rose Publications who published a lot of the Bryants' material. He was a great songwriter. He'd been a pop songwriter. He wrote all kinds of country hits, but he was a publisher. That's how he was making his money with his partner, Roy Acuff. The Bryants survived and thrived by being writers. Now, it's true that Boudlow had a salaried position representing Nat Tannen Music, which was based in New York, and Fred Rose helped him get that job. So he had a salary of, started, I think, at $35 a week 
that helped the plants survive, but very soon they started hitting in a big way. Number one country hits, top 20 and top 10 pop hits. They had a number one song in England with um, Frankie Lane's version of Hey Joe, which Carl Smith had a number one country hit on. So they were on their way by the time Fred Rose passed away in December of 1954. If I can add just one thing, John brought up something very interesting. They did have a deal with Tannen that, that Fred had helped them get. And Dad's deal was Tannen wanted to pay him $40 a week. And Dad said, I'll take 35 but I only want to pitch my own songs. Wow. So they were working as a publisher, but it was much like a songwriter because they were just pitching their own stuff. That's fantastic. And in those early negotiations, they also found a way to get back their original compensation. Well, those negotiations came a little bit later after Fred died when they re-signed with Acuff Rose after having a publishing company of their own called Showcase for a few years where they had songs like Richest Man in the World, We Could, which of course the exhibit here is named. But when they signed back with Wesley, who said, we need you. Uh, Pappy loved you, I love you, and we need you as an anchor for Acuff Rose. They were able to sign a 10-year agreement where everything reverted. How smart. And let's talk about the extraordinary career they've had. You know, in, in this town, again, you have people who have a top three hit or top five hit, whatever time it is, and then somebody like a cab driver will say, well, what have you written? And they'll say the song, and the guy says, I never heard of that. That never happened to the Bryants. <laughs> You have, you have Bye Bye Love, Wake Up Little Susie. You've got, of course, in the great state of Tennessee, Rocky Top. Over and over again, Raining in My Heart, a Buddy Holly cut. Uh, it was just an extraordinary track record. And, and Dal, do you know what the numbers are? How many recordings are, there are of your, of your parents' music? During the process of putting this together, John and I talked a lot trying to come up with some of those numbers. I know that approximately 900 unique titles were recorded. And you take a title like Love Hurts or All I Have to Do is Dream or Bye Bye Love or Rocky Top. Those songs were covered by hundreds of people. And if you go on the internet today, you'll find another hundred people you've never heard of and you'll find them all around the world. So to say how many recordings of those songs, it's, hard, it's, it's really hard to say, impossible to say. Uh, we believe that there were well over a thousand recordings uh, by different people of that body of work. So I, I gather you probably grew up on Old Hickory Lake, is that right? Yes, we, I grew up in, uh, on Gallatin Road for a while, and then in 1956, the shank of 56, we moved to the lake. It had recently been dredged, I think, right? It, well, it was, we were building throughout 56 and watched them tearing down barns and fences. They weren't really dredging it, it's too big. It was a, more than two miles across to Old Hickory from where we lived. And uh, I remember when they, when they turned the floodgate on and my brother and I were watching the lake come in in 56, I was eight, Dane was nine, and we kept saying, Daddy, oh no, it's gonna, it's gonna flood the house, it's gonna come into the yard, it's gonna, and Dad <laughs> said, no, the Corps of Engineers, are, they know what they're doing. And sure as the world, it, it rimmed the, the, the point that, that, that Dad said it would and it didn't come anywhere near the house and, we were really greatly uh, relieved. Well, I raise that because you lived in maybe the coolest neighborhood in Nashville. Neighbors were Roy Orbison and Johnny Cash. Uh, and, and even and now? Ray Price lived in our neighborhood, Don Helms, 
and, and Jerry Rivers of uh, Hank's band. Wow. And uh, it was, and then Fred Foster later moved into the house. So you were faded. <laughs> the way you grew up, where you grew up, you're going to be in this business. Uh, and uh, Dr. Rummel. Well, I was just going to mention that Boudlow and Fred Foster were very close, and they lived in close proximity. And Will Orbison cut Bryant songs. And uh, Boots Randolph lived right there, too. And he. Yeah. So I mentioned that in part, in part because I live across the lake from that uh, location. I take, I take uh, visitors all the time. You know, unfortunately, Johnny's house is not there, and of course, Roy Everson's hasn't been for decades. But just to kind of be in that neighborhood and show them yeah. this is extraordinary. Last night, we were watching, my wife and I were watching the, the current country music history on, uh, you know, Ken Burns has put together. And uh, I'm a little behind, so it was probably live two nights ago. But my wife had this interesting reaction when she saw the video of your parents. And she said, they look perfect together. They seemed so happy. And I would normally scoff at a, a psychological take on people on the basis of seven seconds. But, but my, my understanding is that they were extraordinarily happy, good partners professionally and in life. Is that, is that oh, true? Oh, they, they were married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout. And uh, shortly, the night they met, Dad was calling her his fiance, <laughs> And she was saying, we're supposed to be married. You're the man of my dreams. She had clearly, my mother had some clairvoyance. Not only she had it, but it was in her family, old Sicilians. And uh, she clearly had had dreams of Dad. And when she saw him across the room, recognized him. And, uh, but they were, they were very, very happy. They, uh, my father was an alcoholic. That was the only thing they ever argued about. And he gave it up totally in the very early 50s and, uh, and towed the line. And because uh, that's what it took to, to keep my mother happy. And, and he was not a mean or an ugly or a bad drunk. He was just an alcoholic. Right. But they, they were extremely affectionate. and and uh, they, you'd hardly ever be around them when you wouldn't see them close together and their hands on each other. They were, they were lovey-dovey and they always were. That translates into great music. Their big break comes, of course, in 1948 with Little Jimmy Dickens, a song called Country Boy. Had to convince them that they could be successful songwriters. Well, it, it opened the door. It didn't necessarily, I wouldn't say convince them, but it, it, it sort of, it cleared away some of the debris they had been working for, for a number of years trying to figure out where's the door? You know, how do you get into this? Writing letter after letter after letter. And they wouldn't be discouraged. And Dad always said that that, that that turned out to be the key to their success because it wasn't easy to get in. Right. So, so Dell, tell me about the magic that brought them together with the Everly Brothers. How did that happen? Well, it truly it came to their publisher, Echo Froze. And they got called down to pitch songs, but a little bit more of the story, and if you saw it in Ken Burns, it was certainly well told. Dad had been getting his hair cut in Madison, which is just up from Hendersonville, as you know. And Ike Everly had moved into that community and was, was a barber. And he used to cut Dad's hair, and he would say, oh, I've got a couple of boys, and they're really good, and I really wish you'd hear them one day, and I, I, I think they're great. And Dad would say, well, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear him. That'd be good. Uh, just a little bit shorter here. <laughs> and uh, because everybody had somebody in their family who was talented and who could sing. And, 
And in my folks before the Everly Brothers were, were the number one country songwriters in, in the, in right. the, on the scene. So he had met uh, Ike, but just never met the guys. And one day his publisher called and said, we've signed these two new guys and, and Boudlow, we'd like you to come down and show them a few songs. And they met them that day. They wow. went down and they pitched Bye Bye Love, which they pitched to Gordon Terry, who didn't think it was strong enough because uh, Archie Blyer had signed about four new acts. He'd signed Gordon, the Everleys, Anita, Carter, and uh, there's one other person he'd signed for this country label he was starting. Cadence was a pop label, but he was going to start a country division. And unfortunately, the people in New York, I mean fortunately, sent out the first Everly Brother record, pop and country and everything. They didn't just keep it in the country, and it broke. There goes my baby with someone new. She sure looks happy. I sure am blue. She was my baby. It's, uh, if, you, if you pick up a copy of any anthology of any collection of the Everly Brothers, it's three quarters of it are your, are your folks. There had to be quite an affinity between the artist and the songwriter. Well, I can tell you, and you, you know this, that when you have a hit, if you're an artist, you want another one more than anything. And it's very logical that you might get it from where you got the first one. So mom and dad had the opportunity always had the opportunity to pitch what they had written for the guys, and they were just good at it. They, Dad was a harmony freak. He worked it in, and slowly with the success they had, was able to advance the harmonies, and it was just sort of magical. You know, they did other songs that were, were big. They did some of their own that were big, but Mom and Dad were just in the pocket. All right. How did... Uh how did Renning in My Heart get to Buddy Holly? It had to be at the very end of his recording career. Mm -hmm. One of Buddy's best friends in the world was Phil Everly. Phil Everly called Dad one day and said, I've got a buddy of mine in town, Buddy Holly, and uh, I don't know if they were at Acuff Rose, they were somewhere downtown. He said, Budla, would you come over and pitch that song uh, that you showed us that uh, Don didn't think was quite right? And I think it's a great song, would you show it? I want you to come and pitch that and show it to Buddy. And Dad drove to town just as, with his guitar and did a guitar vocal live, and Buddy liked it. And uh, got him a tape, and Buddy recorded it. It was that simple, but it was Phil Everly that was responsible. The sun is out, the sky is blue. There's not a cloud to spoil of you, but it's raining. Raining in my heart 
The weatherman says clear today He doesn't know you've gone away And it's raining Raining in my heart And that explains the I know Sonny Curtis knows Phil Everly, and there's that whole group from out of uh, out of Lubbock. It's a, in fact, uh, as an aside, I bought a, an arrest warrant at an NSAI fundraiser for I fought the law and the law won. And law, <laughs> and all the all the witnesses are former crickets or Everly brothers. So that explains everything to me. Well, you know, there are a lot of pictures you'll see um, it, it, when you look at the Buddy Holly story or the Everly brother story of those those people mixing around and being together. Right. They liked each other. So let me ask something about the credits on your, on your parents' songs. Lennon and McCartney shared everything. Every song, whether written by Paul or John, was Lennon and McCartney. Your folks were precise about who wrote what. Uh, does that mean they were competitive or just accurate? Well, they were sleeping together and it really didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> and if dad wrote it alone, he put his name on it. If mom wrote it alone, she put her name on it. If, if they had any interaction at all on the song, they shared it. I know that uh, Take a Message to Mary went to the studio. The Everleys were doing it. They were in the studio cutting it and Archie Blyer said, Budlo, it needs something. It needs some sort of kickoff or something. Dad went out on the stoop and wrote, these are the words of a frontier man who lost his, I mean a frontier lad who lost his love when he turned bad. And Archie said, that's it, and they cut it. And when mom heard that, she said, you had to get on it, didn't you? <laughs> you know? But right. they, they, they worked so well together. There, were, there was no uh, ego. If he did it, and one thing that's interesting that I tell people, it's true. If it was a song that dad wrote alone, it was usually written early in the morning because mother didn't get up early. And I remember distinctly, Diane and mom and I all woke up about the same time and dad said, I want you to hear what I've done. And took us into the room off the kitchen where the reco cut was. And he played the disc. And he'd, he'd written it that morning and he said it only took him about eight minutes. And mom said, man, you could release that record and have a hit. She just fell in love with that immediately, and I remember that moment. But a lot of it had to do with hours, and if mom was listening it and heard something she really liked, she wouldn't let him finish it without her. Uh, I just got time for a couple more questions. I'm, I'm curious about the legs of your Mom parents. or dad's. <laughs> the legs <laughs> of your parents' songs. In other words, they keep becoming hits over and over again. I mean, the Nazareth version of Love Hurts in the 70s. Yeah. You have a theory about why they're really timeless like that? Well, they're timeless because first they get cut. <laughs> <laughs> why did it get cut is a better, better question, probably. Uh, Parsons, Graham Parsons loved that song. And he was revered in Scotland. When I and Dad got with Manny Carlton, who's the leader of Nazareth, Dad said, Man, where'd you get this? Did you, I guess you heard, you liked the Everleys, or was it Orbison? He, they said, no, it was Graham Parsons. I've really learned to love, really learned to love. Love is like a stone, and you let it Love hurts. 
They're well-written songs. They're concise. They're tight. They, they get in and get out clean. They're just, and they were quite often, they were in that historic time period and acknowledged as, as uh, historic classic songs. And people want to want to dip into that, that, uh, that pocket every now and then. They, they were just lucky to have some of the best. Right. Well, we can dip into more of that music here at the Country Music Hall of Fame. Dr. Rumble, can you tell us a little bit about what we will find in that exhibit? Well, for one thing, you will see the Bryant's songwriting journals. They started out by writing on scraps of paper. There was one time Poodler wrote a song on a grocery sack, and it got thrown away and burned by the housekeeper before they could really get it down. So they started writing at Chet Atkins' suggestion in big ledgers. And fans will be able to see those ledgers, see how they wrote, what they wrote, the edits they made. That's one of the most exciting things. Another thing people will see is interactive touch screens that explore Oh, 16 or 20 songs. They're great. And you can go to a picture of the 45, a picture of the album cover. You can go to the song manuscript. You can go to an alternative version of the manuscript when something was just beginning to take shape. You can go to photos of the artists. Uh, you can hear an interpretation by a particular artist and maybe by two artists or more. Uh, so you could spend hours with the interactives alone. You'll see Boudlow's fiddle. A lot of people don't realize it, but he was one heck of a fiddler. And Chet considered him, Chet Atkins considered Boudlow a wonderful jazz fiddler, which he was. Chet was a jazz freak too. And the two of them wrote songs together. So I think people will learn a lot. They'll also have a great time and it's a chance to touch history. Well said. Thank you, Del Bryant. Thank you, Dr. John Rumble. Uh, Thank you. This is, a, this is a very special event in the heart of Music City. The exhibit has just opened, and uh, come and check out uh, the two of the most remarkable songwriters in world history. This is Americana One. This has been Ken Paulson. Thank you so much for listening, and tune in again next week on Americana One.